Thank you, Josh. The things you learn. There we are. I'm sorry if you were expecting a nice quiet evening yesterday to play your games because you had to put up with us screeching our way through aha and all kinds of various things. My son, who is five and learning to play the drums, has... Uh, he's into all kinds of music, but just recently he keeps on asking for "Aha, Take on Me." You know, he likes that. And and I showed him the video. I, I, I suddenly thought, "Wow, oh, the video!" Do you remember? Can anyone remember the video for "Take on Me"? About two people who are just yeah, just about to admit it. Yeah, like this incredible. This is a really cathartic moment of showing my son "Aha." Anyway, there we go. Sorry about last night. Human jukebox or not, it might have been irritating. Um, no, yeah, Josh enjoyed it. Yeah. All right, so um, if you've got a Bible, perhaps can you get it out, start finding Deuteronomy chapter 2. Um, if you haven't got a Bible, lean in and borrow the person's next to you. Um, you never know, this might be your big opportunity. <laughs> hey baby, nice Bible. <laughs> Is that the ESV gold-edged, ribbon-bound, concordance, women's spiritual life Bible? <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> No, dating by Bible sharing, it's a whole new thing. There you go. This is is a new strategy. It's a new strategy. Uh, By the way, Josh has put me a little bit further back because I didn't manage to shower this morning. (laughs) So I'm kind of slightly... He's put a kind of a buffer zone in between the church and me. Um, So yesterday we were talking about Deuteronomy chapter 1. It was about how not to sabotage your future. Um, exploring uh, some of the kind of ins and outs of, of, uh, of, not Deuteronomy, I should say the fifth of Moses' writings, right? Is that right? Did I get it right? Okay, for all you guys who are into Swedish terminology for um, for the the Pentateuch. Um, So Deuteronomy slash Moses' fifth book or writings. Um, And we were looking at how this book looks back to the second generation of Israelites gathered on the borders of the promised land, about to enter in. And then Moses, the content of the letter, or the content of the book is Moses looking back to the first generation, and all the language is you. And so this second generation are caught up in the you of this people, and the warning kind of comes through, don't you muck it up like they did. And so the kind of warning and encouragement comes to us as well, and everyone who reads Deuteronomy finds this very present you uh, coming out loud and clear from the text and today we're going to explore the next couple of chapters there's quite a lot of text to get through um, but there's going to be quite a lot of stuff here looking at specifics of the journey um, some fighting that's in there as well we're going to go a bit hunger games um, and maybe not hunger games um, think more lord of the rings perhaps um, and just yes you said yes that's um Maybe not Lord of the Rings. Well, okay, use your imagination. Um, maybe not quite so many orcs in Deuteronomy, but it's, you know, hey-ho. Uh, and we're going to try and understand, we're going to land on something, uh, uh, kind of, I've got to try and land it on Jesus, which is a good place to land a sermon. Um, and then we're going to sing, Alad's going to uh, lead us in a song as well at the end. So um, I might pray if that's okay, because I can feel myself starting to ramble incoherently. Um, so it's probably a good time to call on the Lord. <laughs> um, Jesus, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you lived and died and rose again, that you ascended to the right hand 
of God where you reign. Thank you that the the Lion of Judah is the Lamb who was slain. Uh, Thank you that you uh, were revealed in the book of Revelation as this Lamb. Uh, Something about your kingly power is gentle and tender and vulnerable. And Lord, we need a God like you. (laughs) One who comes to us in tenderness and in gentleness. One who doesn't uh, overwhelm us with displays of might and power, but one who tenderly loves and gently nourishes us. We pray, nourish us through your word. Nourish this church through your word. Do good to us through your word. This breathed out by God word that you breathe out of as we open it. We pray, may we discern your breath your voice coming to us, shaping our hearts and lives today, we pray. Amen. Okay, good. I'll try again now. So uh, what's going to happen here is uh, Moses is remembering how this generation failed and were turned back and were turned back into the wilderness again. And for 40 years, this generation wander in the wilderness. And there's this kind of irony that happens that just at the point where they fail and their unbelief robs them of going into the land and inheriting the land God says turn back now and they turn around and they have to head back in the direction of Egypt it's like a reversal of the exodus God has brought them out of Egypt out of captivity and slavery with mighty acts with a strong arm and yet their disobedience blows it for them and now ha ha now they are obedient God says turn back and they do and off they go and they wander off into the wilderness for these 40 years and so we're kind of landing at the point here in chapter 2 where Moses is saying okay now this is what this is when we God says again turn and head back it's time there's enough wandering it's time to start heading back again so remember it's confusing isn't it but we're looking back and Moses is looking back so this is the moment where Israel are turning again after their wanderings and coming close to inheriting so we're going to read from chapter 2 verse 1 we're going to read a big chunk up to verse 23 uh, and then we'll start to make a few comments on this okay are we all good okay great you got your bibles out No one breathing down your neck? Nice, okay. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we travelled around Mount Seir. Then the Lord said to me, you've been travelling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northwards and command the people, you are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who lived in Seir. And they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them for money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water of them for money that you may drink, for the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness these 40, uh, these 40 years. The Lord your God has been with you. You've lacked nothing. So we went on, away from our brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, away from the Arabah, a road from Elath and Ezion-Geba. And we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I've given Ah to the people of Lot for a possession. And then notice here, bracket, 
The Emin formerly lived there, a people great and many, and tall as the Anakim. It's basically Emil, that's who he's talking about. Okay? Uh, a people great and many, tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Emim or Emil. Um, the Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Close brackets. Now rise up and go over the brook Zered. So we went over the brook Zered. And the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years until the entire generation, that is, the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. As soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, Today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar, and when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. Okay, open brackets again. It's also counted as a land of Rephaim. That's, gosh, Emil, your descendants, mate. They're all over the place. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumin, a people great and many and as tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place as he did for the people of Esau, who lived in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. As for the Avim, who lived in villages as far as Gaza, the Kaphtorim, who came from Kaphtor, destroyed them and settled in their place. Okay, that's a massive, 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 massive chunk of text, and it's really, really confusing. I want to deal with one obstacle that might help us to not lose, kind of just zone out immediately this morning. Uh, who the heck are all these people? Like, all the ites and the ins and everything. There's like all these different groups of people that are mentioned here. Moabites, Horites, Ammonites, Anakim, Rephaim, Avim... Well, you'd be pleased to know that the specific identity of these different groups, who are, by the way, kind of sort of related to Israel in some ways, uh, the, spe- the, specific, the specifics, like the geographical and sociological stuff, that is sort of secondary to a theological point that is being made in Deuteronomy. Okay? It's, it's important because it's there. But the main point for our purposes is to understand something of what God is doing in this text. All right? When we're reading a massive swathe of narrative like that in the Old Testament, we're looking out for certain things to try and unpick and understand what's going on here. Why is all this detail here? What is the point in it all? It serves a theological agenda somehow. When you read any passage of the Bible, but particularly narrative passages, longer chunks of narrative, the idea is to, the, the idea is what you have to understand is that the narrative contains the theological contents. It's not that you pluck out bits from that and you cobble them together into something else, but rather something about God, something about the content, something that is happening within the narrative that is important, that brings insight into God. So we don't have to try and separate it away from the story, but we understand within the contours of the story what this says about God. Does that make sense? If you're a bit baffled by that, you may come and speak to me over lunch which is right after the meeting, downstairs in the cafe, Aled. Uh, Aled? Josh, you're Josh. 
I've just taken a mick out of Joshua. Um, so here's how I want to try and help us understand what's going on then. I want to point out some areas where there's a repetition of words or phrases. And this is one way that you can start to learn to see what the point of the narrative is. Look for repetitions, look for phrases that come up again and again and again. And that gives you an insight into what is going on, how the writer, the author is construing the piece, what is actually happening here. And there's actually two groups of three words that get repeated three times each, funnily enough. Okay? The first one, they, they look like this. Do not contend. Can you see that? Good. Do not contend. I will not give. I have given. All right? You can look it up. There's the references. Have a look. Okay? Three times this phrase pops up in these three places. Verse 5, verse 9, verse 19. And then again, you get three repetitions of destroy, dispossess, settled in their place. Okay? When you get repetition like that, that's important. And you need to pay attention to what's going on. And you need to try and discern what the author is trying to say theologically. What is happening here? Why are these repetitions? It may not sound very significant to you. Perhaps you think, well, nah, it's just a few repeated phrases. Well, let me try and show you how it's important and show you why it really contains some serious contents. Let's look at the first set. Do not contend, I will not give, I have given. In this story, in this big, huge chunk of text that we've read, Israel is journeying toward the land. Okay? They're on this journey, they've turned again now, and they're on the way, they're kind of journeying back round, and they're coming into contact with these three people groups who are related in varying degrees to Israel. So Esau, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. And it's of these three groups of people that God says, do not contend with them. I will not give you any of their land. I have given it to them as a possession. Okay. So Israel's on the way. They're on the way to an inheritance somewhere, but they're not to touch any of these people or their stuff because God's given it to them. Here's the first significant theological chunk from this text. The earth is the Lord's. It's all God's. It all belongs to him. This is hugely important, of course. Israel are not the only people who are receiving a gift of land. Because Esau, the Moabites, and the Ammonites have been given land from God as well. Now, whether they regard the gift of land as being a theological thing, or whether they see it in terms of ancient Near Eastern rail politique, who knows? But from the author of Deuteronomy's perspective, God is the God of the whole world. It belongs to him, and he gives it to whoever the heck he wants to give it. Crazy people. Outrageous people, sensible people, lunatics, Moabites, Esau, whoever. He decides whom he gives what to and when he gives it to them. So land or inheritance is not some entitlement from the perspective of Deuteronomy. It's a gift and it is given. Now listen, you are a church plant or some of you at least who associate with good first in this place are a church plant. You do not have a divine right to claim this, that, and the other. 
that God is giving you something and he's giving you inheritance, that does not mean that you will prosper at the expense of a bunch of other people. Because Israel were not to prosper at the expense of Esau and the Moabites or anybody else because God has given them something. Don't touch that. That's theirs. I'm giving you something. When we can see that all things are God's, it frees us from the grasping, seizing thing, a bit like what Pete touched on yesterday afternoon. God's got inheritance for you. That doesn't mean that you rob anybody else. It means that God's got stuff for you. So be confident in that. Be hopeful in that. You don't need to dispossess anybody else. You don't need to think we're going to bring down the Swedish Lutherans. <laughs> no, 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 no. God may have given that to them. So you leave alone. He'll give you what he's promised you. Okay? It's really, really important. It's not just political stuff, is it? From a Bible perspective, from a theological perspective, everything is the Lord's. And that's the perspective that Scripture expects us to own. And it's this perspective that Scripture tries to overcome our realities with as well. The earth is the Lord's. With all the implications of that. Here's the second set of words. Destroy, dispossess, settle it in their place. You might have noticed, well actually hopefully you did because I pointed it out. <laughs> there were a few long sections, this will test whether you were really paying attention. There was a few long sections in the text that we read that were in brackets. And that's because those words are not part of Moses' original speech. Okay, so what we read in Deuteronomy or the fifth book of Moses is an account of Moses' sermons delivered to the second generation as they're about to go into the land. But that account was put together by somebody who has also inserted their own theological reflections on Moses and Moses' sermons and this whole incident. And those are the bits in brackets. This is the voice of the editor, whoever put together this piece that we call Deuteronomy. And these editorial pieces reflects on the history of the land. It's reflecting on the kind of, almost the the political scene, the scene in the ancient Near East as the generation, the second generation, are heading towards the borders again. And it's a history of conflict. It's a history of fighting, of nation against nation, and all kinds of argy-bargy, to use a very English phrase, kind of people conflicting and fighting against one another. And yet this conflict is not arbitrary or random. It's not just, oh, it's just all kind of kicking off down here. This is God's doing. There is a prehistory, if you like, to this land and this kind of whole region. There's a complex thing going on, but it's not happening outside of Yahweh's governance and sovereignty. It's happening within that. And so here's the second chunk of theological significance that comes from this narrative he is lord of history Yahweh the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob the God of Israel is not only the lord of the whole earth but also the lord of all history to use a slightly cheesy point history is his story it's his unfolding purpose 
in the earth. Yahweh is the mover and shaker when it comes to the affairs of the world. It's he who is behind stuff. If you noticed in the text, some of these conflicts are people kind of, kind of taking each other on. But it says, but Yahweh kind of somehow instigates or allows this stuff to go down. The Lord of history is the God who promised Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his offspring. And so Yahweh's global sovereignty and lordship are never, his lordship over history is not just random. It's not just, well, I fancy kind of doing something over here and kind of, you know, some kind of celebrity death match between the Moabites and the Ammonites here. That would be some fun to watch, you know. You, ultimate fighting's got nothing on this. Whoa! Now, it's never just arbitrary. It's put to use in service of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The Lord is the Lord of history for the sake of his people and their inheritance in the land. Okay? All that prehistory, nations, peoples, conflicts, it's almost as though the editor of Deuteronomy says, look, understand that all this stuff happens as a means of God making a way for his people to enter in. He's the Lord of history. The whole earth is his. He is over the geopolitical scene. He's the Lord of all history. The background of this nation is not random and arbitrary. It is all about his purposes in Christ Jesus. All things coming together in him. Now, I imagine what you're thinking. This is preposterous. How can you possibly say that? This is... How can God be the Lord of history? So many atrocities, so much violence, blah, 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 blah. blah. Well, yeah, I get it, okay? From a, a, if you're only going to look from a very human, 21st century, liberal, Western perspective, this is preposterous. But we're not talking about a 21st century, liberal, Western perspective. We're talking about a theological perspective. We're talking about people who worship this God who understand something of his purposes and who go, okay, all right, I I see. (laughs) The God we worship is not separate from all that. This is not kind of guesswork on our part, which, which way is the wind blowing? But we have a God who sovereignly guides nations and history for the sake of his people and for the sake of his purpose. That gives us great confidence. That means that Christians above all peoples should be the least inclined to freak out about the world scene, okay? Because God is the key player in all of that somehow. Now, it's a mystery. I don't understand. No one has entered into the council of heaven to be able to say, oh, that's how it works then. Now, when God speaks to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? The answer is nowhere, (laughs) So don't pry. <laughs> there is inscrutable, unsearchable wisdom in God. And you would do well to not speculate about things, but to take the cues from the text that say, we have a big God. The earth is his. History is his. Hallelujah. He's doing this for the sake of his people. So these two huge chunks of theology, and they are big, they are macro in that sense, 
They serve as a profound encouragement to Israel, but also a profound warning. I think we've probably said enough about encouragement in a sense. God has defeated giants in the past. Do you remember back to chapter 1, verse 28, the freaking out when the spies came back? Oh, we've seen Emil in there. Tall people. We seem like grasshoppers to them. Oh, my goodness. Ah. And only Caleb says, no, 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 we'll take him. He's skinny. <laughs> um, he may be tall, but hey. So the encouragement, yes, yeah, sorry, Emil. This is what happens if you kind of take us to hang around in a 7-Eleven for half an hour, you know? Like, we've travelled all freaking day, buddy. What are you doing? Like, standing around talking about hot dogs in a petrol station. <laughs> and mashed potato. Yeah, I know. We come from England, dude. We have got petrol stations there. Sorry, mate. It's wrong to give email a hard time, but I will. <laughs> so the, the, the Lord who defeats giants in the land will defeat the giants for us. He will be with us. He will go with us. He will fight for us. The warning is nobody is too big or unruly or so deeply entrenched that Yahweh can't dispossess them can't handle them, including Israel, right? Including the people of God. That's the warning piece. Don't become too proud or complacent. Don't get into a sense of, oh, well, we're just the favoured ones. (laughs) Because God has dispossessed nations before and he may do it to you. And in fact, in Israel's history, the exile from both the north and the south, Assyria and Babylon, is exactly that. God disciplines his wayward children for their rebellion. So the warning is here and the encouragement, and the two things go hand in hand in Scripture, warning and encouragements. God's with us, he's big, he's strong, he's over the world scene, he can defeat the giants, whatever that might be. The kind of crazy strictures of Brussels that we have to work through with charities and churches in, in Europe. Or like, you know, kind of big issues that come up that are difficult for us. God's over that. But don't become complacent with it either. We're going to talk about two kings now. Not the book, two kings. Two actual kings in the story. The text narrates two conflicts with some kings. Uh, I'm going to read a bit to you again. If you can find Deuteronomy 2, verse 24. Okay, we're going to read through until chapter 3, verse 10, okay? Rise up, set, on, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sion the Amorite, king of Heshbon and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Um, hang on, have I actually got this text? This will be easier. Oh yeah, there it is. Okay. Let's just look at this one instead. Um, But Sion, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. Da, da, da. Um, This is the Lord of the Rings bit. 
this text has got a kind of exodus overtone to it, all right? The Lord hardened Sion's spirit and made him obstinate. That takes you back in your imagination to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, whom God said to over and over again through Moses, let my people go. And he goes, okay, and then God hardens his heart so he wouldn't let them go. So this is another kind of exodus piece. The God of the exodus is still the present God with his people as they journey through the land and as they look to inherit what God is giving them. God is still going to deliver them from foes too strong and too mighty for them. And there's a report of Israel's victory in battle. We defeated him. They defeated Sion, king of the Amorites, and his people. And it's sandwiched between two affirmations that God was the reason for the victory. Okay? So it says, the Lord our God gave him over to us. On the other side, the Lord our God gave them all into our hands. And in the middle, we defeated him. All right, okay. So the text is kind of, it's not, this is not let go and let God. You know, that awful Christian bookshop poster thing, let go and let God, lie down and be limp, and God will just do it all for you. This is more like, let's go and let God. Okay? And you need that in your heart as a church, as a small church community. This is not, let's just sort of sit around and hope for something to happen. This is, let's go and let God. Right? We fight, but God gives us the victory. We, we push on, but God fights for us. Ultimately, he gets the honour for the victories and the breakthroughs because he fights on our behalf. We get to kind of get in the middle, and we're in the middle of it, in the thick of it all, but it's God who ultimately is fighting for the sake of his people. It's a profound encouragement for the people of God to understand that this is not some passive, wet, limp thing where we just kind of, oh, we don't really know, we can't share our faith with anybody, but we go for it. And the outcome's in God's hands. We do the fighting, but we, or it looks like we do the fighting, but ultimately God is the one who is making stuff happen. Do you see how that's encouraging? Okay? It's not completely in your hands, but you have to get your hands dirty. It's God who gives the victory, but you're the ones who get involved in you know, fighting, not with swords and clubs this time, hopefully, unless you're not that kind of church. Eh? No. Um, but in terms of pushing through and inheriting what God is giving to you. So Sion, king of Heshbon, (laughs) he gets defeated. By the way, the language that sort of says, and we annihilated them, (laughs) is ancient Near Eastern war rhetoric. It's like me saying, Man United absolutely battered Liverpool yesterday. We thrashed them, It just basically means we won. (laughs) It's it's that kind of language. It's war rhetoric. It kind of leaves you in no doubt as you read this. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, we get it. You won. (laughs) Okay? That's all I'm going to say about that. You can talk about that later on if you like. Fighting with Kings 2. We meet Og, King of Bashan, which is just a brilliant name, isn't it? Og, King of Bashan. He's basically an ogre (laughs) or a troll or something. He's He's a Nordic king. Og, King of Bashan. Let's read some of the narrative. We turned and went up by the way of... uh, uh, It's too small. Then we turned and went up by the way to Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edre. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, 
For I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him as you did to Sion, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people. And we struck him down until he had no survivor left. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them. Sixty cities, the whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these cities were fortified with high walls, gates and bars, besides very many unwalled villages. Uh, Okay, pause for a moment there. What did the first generation say when they saw the land and the people? Oh, the cities with big walls. Surprise, surprise. When the second generation obeys God and believes God, cities with high walls don't count for anything. Quel surprise. Devoting to destruction every city, men, women and children. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon. Brackets, the Sidonians call Hermon Syrian, while the Amorites call it Senea. Close brackets. All the cities of the tableland and all Gilead and all Bashan as far as Salaka and Edrei, cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. And now here's another brackets bit. But only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Okay, so Og is one of the tall guys. He's one of Emil's descendants of Ken. Right? He's one of the big lads. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubits. What a bizarre little thing to say. <laughs> Strange thing. Um, so the cities that were so big, the walled cities, that our little ones are going to be a prey. Remember the first generation of saying our little ones will be a prey when we go into battle. And now it's those very same little ones who are all grown up who are overcoming the walled cities. Oh, what a surprise. <laughs> what a shame that you couldn't believe God. It could have been you. But now the very vulnerable ones that you thought would be a prey are the ones who are entering into the inheritance. Oh, Don't let cynicism and unbelief rob you of the promises. Og's massive iron bed. This this huge bed. I mean, I don't think even weird IKEA mattresses or two don't fit this thing. This is it's thirteen feet long. And six feet wide. It's, it's enormous. It's a massive iron bed. Like this little kind of bracketed bit at the end of this narrative about fighting and kings and all the rest of it. It's kind of it's nuts. It's like, well, <laughs> that's funny. Why this kind of iron bed? Well, here's the profoundly theological points. It's empty. Empty. Og's not in it anymore. He doesn't lie down there anymore because he's lying down dead somewhere else. This ginormous, giant terrorizer of the people of God is defeated and his resting place is empty. He's toast. He's finished. And the bed is empty. The earth is the Lord's. He gives what he wills to whom he wills. Churches, governments, madman or whoever else. Because he is the Lord of history. History isn't random. It's his story. And he directs all things to conform to his ways for his people. Because he is a strong deliverer. 
And his record of fighting alongside his people gives us courage to say, let's go and let God, because he is a mighty conqueror. And Og's massive bed, empty bed, serves to confirm that no foe is too big. But I want us to reflect for a moment on another empty resting place, another place where a terrorizer of God's people, a foe of the people of God, a place where God's people were under the cosh. There's another terrorizer that has been defeated and his resting place is empty. I'm speaking about the empty tomb where Christ emerged on the Easter, first Easter morning, clutching in nail-pierced hand the keys of death and Hades, conquering, bursting out of the grave. Death is defeated. The tomb is empty. The terrorizer of God's people is crushed and under his feet, never to assert his power and authority over God's people ever again. Christ has conquered The enemy of God's people is vanquished and there is freedom and power and authority to step forward with confidence and faith. It will never be asserted over God's people ever again. Christ has conquered. And so indeed, as Yahweh was Lord of all the earth and the Lord of all history for the sake of his people and his promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, so for us today as Christians, we confess one Lord Jesus Christ, one Lord who has triumphed on our behalf, who represents us, who even now stands interceding for his people. In Ephesians 1, we read this, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly place. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church or for the church. You could translate that verse as well. Christ in his resurrected, victorious glory is over all things for the church. It's not just, oh, well, we're just weak people. We're muddling through. We're trying hard. We'll try a program. Oh, it failed. Oh. Now Christ is head over everything for his people. So take courage. He's conquered the foe. Death is defeated. Sin is done. Christ has conquered. We get to celebrate now. We don't become triumphalistic, start throwing our weight around, pretending that there's no struggles anymore, there's no suffering, there's no weakness. Christ's kingship looks like suffering and weakness. We sang the lion and the lamb earlier on. I like that song, but, sorry, Alan, I know you didn't write it, so it's okay. It speaks about Jesus is the lion and Jesus is the lamb. In the book of Revelation, John, who's seeing this vision unfold, weeps because no one's worthy to open this scroll and to kind of, you know, all this kind of stuff in Revelation. And one of the elders in heaven says, don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Ah, right, okay. And so, behold, so John goes, uh, and looks, I mean, what's he expecting? Aslan, Rah! He looks round and he says, and I saw... A lamb, looking as though it had been slain. There's only one flipping animal there. 
One! It's not a lion and a lamb having a kind of a tussle over who gets to sit on this bit of the throne. The, the elder says, look, the lion! And John looks, and there's the lamb. And what it suggests is this, that if you want to think about what God's regal royal authority in Christ looks like, it's not Aslan going, Rah! it's a lamb who was slain. Because the wisdom of God and the power of God is this, that he overcomes the powers by virtue of weakness and vulnerability and self-emptying love. He doesn't take on the powers with the same kind of power. He takes them on by disarming them at the cross. This is the way of Christian victory. Not this, but a cross. And so when Jesus says, if you want to be my disciples, follow me. I've got a great plan for your life. It's going to look like a constant victory. It's going to be basically all your aspirations and onwards and upwards thing with a spiritual tinge. How beautiful. You can be a 21st century millennial liberal westerner and kind of have a spirituality as well. That's awesome. And Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. The way to victory is the way of the cross. God's way of showing power, lion-like regal authority is expressed by means of a lamb. This is what it looks like for Christ to conquer. He defeated death and sin and the devil at the cross in vulnerability and weakness. Now when he appears again, different story. But for now, the way of God is the way of Christ, which is the way of the cross. And that's the way that we walk now. That's how he calls us to walk. So we go for it, and we take courage, and we fight, and we push through. But we do so in a place of weakness, of non-certitude, of not kind of some fascist kind of, we are right about everything, and we've got to cling on to that for all means. But we get to do it with a spirit of humility, vulnerability because that's the way that God conquers that's how he's done it in Christ that's what the kingdom of God looks like nevertheless we do get to say together Jesus Christ king of the cosmos and lord of history Jesus Christ defeater of death and crusher of our foes Jesus Christ, the guarantee of our inheritance. Jesus Christ, our saviour and our God. Aled's going to come and lead us in a song. Can you get ready, mate? I'd like us to stand up. I'd actually like us to say these words together, to confess them together. Um, I don't know how much of a a hangover you had from liturgy in this country. In New Frontiers in the UK, liturgy is a little bit of a dirty word. Um, We're trying to change that as much as we can in York. Um, Liturgy can be wonderful. And there's some power in saying some things together and confessing some things together. All right. So I will say Jesus Christ. This is fun, isn't it? It's like I say brothers, you say... Um, I'm going to say Jesus Christ and then you can say the bit in italics. Is that okay? Are we all good with this? If you don't want to do it, sit down. But that's okay. Or just slink out subtly and quietly. Um, pack your room up and just... I'm just kidding. I shouldn't, I shouldn't use humour to undermine a serious point at this moment. That's um, one, of my, one of my weaknesses. So, yeah. All right, let's do this. Jesus Christ, King, King of the Cosmos, and Lord of History. Jesus Christ, 
defeater of death and crusher of our foes. Jesus Christ, the guarantee of our inheritance. Jesus Christ, our Saviour and our God. Fantastic. Why don't you lead us now?